I staked out that guy, only it didn't work out like you said. Please call me. Room 234, County Hospital. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. <laughs> and we're going back to the good old days uh, with this episode, all the way back to season one. Um, season one, episode 10, The Dexter Crisis. This is... Um... The very, very end of the second disc of season one. Did you get it first time? I did, only because it was, uh, I, it was, I mean, it was a gamble. It, it could have been the very beginning of disc uh, three, but because mm. it was disc two, I was just like, we'll just pull the first one out and take a look at it. So mm-hmm. it doesn't count. It's an easy one is what right, I'm saying. Right. Because we're in season one, we're in that weird territory where it's sometimes episode 10 and sometimes episode 11, depending on what source, because IMDb right. treats the pilot differently than other sources do in terms of being part of the season, whatever. So I'm just going by the easy the easy read, which is the IMDb entry. <laughs> the, the gold standard. Right, right. So, yeah. Uh, did I pick this one? I picked this one. You did, yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's I... been... We've had a... We, We've had a bit of gap in our recording schedule, so I had to yeah. reach back into memory. Um, yes, I chose this one mainly because I was looking at the balance of our season, you know, what what we've recorded per season. And uh, I feel like we could do a couple a couple more season one episodes. It's been a while since we've done one, I think. And yeah. um, and uh, just to even out even out our coverage. So looking through what we have not done from this season, um, this one just sounded fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, part of the synopsis includes Jim going uh, going out of town. So that's always always fun to see. I did not really remember this one at all, so it did feel pretty pretty exciting to start it up and see what I was getting myself into. I think I think uh, just from a sort of selfish point of view, I think it's a good decision too because I we're probably biased towards episodes that feature the uh character the the side characters mm-hmm. the 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 greater rockford family um and th- that means we will at the end of our whole run here just have a whole bunch of jim on his own episodes. <laughs> so it's good that we get them yeah we inter- we hit them them. earlier than, yeah yeah it was, it was a very fun episode i i um before we even get into any of it i just just was a very pleasant watch yeah yeah easy easy watch yeah there's no risk of of uh although i i guess recently we had the the um i can't think of the name of it but the one that uh what's his name james colburn directed oh uh irving the explorer yeah that that was a demanding watch right right um it's you know not 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 with any negative connotations just like if you if you just casually watch that one, you're just going to end up scratching your head. <laughs> right. And then we had a bit of a more kind of emotionally engaged watch with the Becker. Uh, yes. The Becker one. Where it's like, oh, no, what's going to happen to Becker? So, yeah, this one definitely yeah. uh, felt a bit less. I mean, not that these are high. This is it's it's television. Like <laughs> It's not like the right. stakes <laughs> are high. <laughs> Guess what? Everyone's OK. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. So, yeah. Smack dab in the middle of season one. Which I think we we see some real like foundational Jim Rockford behavior. Like, yeah. here's the character <laughs> that this show is is has is built around, and here's him doing his thing, which is always uh, always nice. It, it's gonna we're gonna go to Vegas, and we're gonna see him uh, play the character of a professional gambler, which is 
fun for the Maverick fans of our audience mm-hmm. here, even though he's not playing the games that Maverick would, would have played. But still, yeah. This one is directed by Alexander Grasshoff. Uh, he directed another episode earlier in the first season. It seems like he may have come into the the family through previous Huggins Cannell projects. Um, he directed a number of episodes of Toma, which was oh, a yeah. detective show that kind of sideways turned into the Rockford Files. <laughs> but he also uh, he also directed some Kolchak, uh, The Night Stalker, and um, just looking through his credits, he directed the 1977 movie The Last Dinosaur. Have we talked about that? No. About that movie? It rang a bell, and I couldn't remember if it's because you were talking to me about it or or something. Uh, but at some point, we talked about. Um, I think Baby was the oh. the name of it, which mm-hmm. was a, a dinosaur film. Um, that we must have talked about that years ago, but I do re- distinctly remember talking about it on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm definitely going to find this and watch this movie. I I. It seems like an epi joint. There's nothing. Nothing's going to stop me. <laughs> nothing but scarcity is right. going to stop me from. Uh, I can see clips. Come on, tell me, tell me where I can watch this. Tell me where I can watch this. Ooh, I can get the VHS tape for five dollars. Uh, this episode is written by Gloria Clark. Mm-hmm. So I did some internet sleuthing, and then it turns out that there's a great write up of her in. Um, Oh, in 30 years of the Rockford Files. <laughs> so maybe I'll just go to that. Her IMDb credits are um, she's just all over my childhood here. Like she's... Well, she's she's primarily an editor, right? So okay. her credits are mostly for her editing work. Um, well, I'll go ahead and just read from uh, 30 years of the Rockford Files here. The Ed Robertson book. This episode was written by Gloriette Clark, who enjoyed a long association as a film editor, writer, and director at Universal, particularly on projects produced by Roy Huggins. Clark was nominated for an Emmy in 1972 for Outstanding Achievement in Film Editing on The Lawyers, which was a series produced by Huggins as part of the NBC dramatic wheel, The Bold Ones. Prior to becoming a film editor, Clark was the resident stock footage librarian at Universal Pictures. And then there's some quotes from... um, Supervising producer Joe Swirling uh, of the Rockford Files about how good she was at finding the right stock footage when they needed it for <laughs> for Universal projects. Uh, it also mentions in her, uh, unfortunately, in her obituary, I believe she, oh. yeah, she she passed away in 2014. Um, but she worked at Disney first and then moved into working at at Universal. So yeah, it's a quite a quite a career. Uh, especially as her obituary notes for a woman working in Hollywood in at that time, uh, she really really put her mark on a lot of a lot of stuff. Uh, this is the only episode of the Rockford Files that she wrote, so <laughs> so we'll talk about her here. But uh, shout out to to Gloriette Clark. I I was just looking through her IMDb page, uh, and she had done some stuff with um, the Greatest American Hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which is. Uh, I, th- I guess she probably edited this episode. Anyways, um, you know, uh, another favorite. Uh, she did an episode called Wizards and Warlocks. Yes, I saw that. Uh, which the the IMDb image for it is, is I guess, uh, one of the greatest works of art that has, has ever existed. Uh, skull, candle, Wizards and Warlocks in a nice Star Trek font. It's nice. it's, it's amazing. Um, which is, is probably a part of like that whole 
not the satanic panic, but the the fear of of D and D from um, back in that time. It looks like, but anyways, I just wanted to mention it because uh, it it was like a siren call to me. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. Now I have to watch that episode. Have yeah. to find it somewhere. We're just we're just giving you a whole a whole watch list out of this episode. I, that's what I like out of it. A television show is more television to watch. But yeah, as as mentioned, uh, Gloria Clark worked on other Huggins projects, again, including Toma. Yeah. I think that's what I was getting to with a, a lot of bringing some some people who clearly had worked on other projects together. Mm-hmm. You see that a lot in this season, and then, you know, a lot of those names kind of drop away after um, Huggins left uh, actively being part of the show. So, But yeah, I think this is a real, a real solid one. Yeah. And I feel like we get some of those good beats right in our preview montage. Yeah, that's the segue. So, all right. First off, the, the line... Private eye, huh? That translates to a lot of things, mostly bad. It's a good line. On my end, first off, the very first frame of the preview montage has Jim in this amazing blue blazer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not sky blue, but it's no. not denim. It's not right. de- like I was I couldn't maybe it's like eggshell? Is that a description of blue? Like like Robin, maybe? Yeah, like the Robin egg is yeah. a, like a nice uh, it's not that light, but yeah, no, it's a good. It... I was struggling to find the description of the exact shade of blue, but I think maybe yeah, like robin, robin egg, yeah, is probably about right. Anyway, it's great, or at least with how my TV is set up, it looked great. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, let me get you to the high point of of the opening montage for me, which is Doctor Hewer, the uh, I'm gonna say villain of mm-hmm. this. Uh, this is a. Uh, the actor's name is Tim O'Connor, mm-hmm. uh, and he plays Dr. Hewer on the first season of Buck Rogers. Okay. All right. I was going to talk about him, too. So Yeah. So for me, my immediate recognition is that he's a recurring Columbo actor. Yeah. And he <laughs> plays a really slimy lawyer in one episode where he's taking advantage of the murdered man's estate. Like he worked for the guy who was murdered and then he's right. going to, he wants to uh, get his beak wet in the, in the state afterwards. And then there's another episode where he is the man who gets murdered. But uh, yeah, he's a real slimy, slimy operator in, uh, in that one episode of Columbo in um, uh, double, he- double shock. And so I was like, oh, this guy, he's, he's bad news just yeah, right yeah. off the bat. <laughs> so I had the exact opposite uh, cause, okay. So Dr. Hewer in Buck Rogers, if you're not familiar is, uh, I guess the head of the earth defense directorate. If I, if I'm getting that correct, well, anyways, he's, you know, better than me. He's basically, um, one of the experts that earth goes to whenever they have a crisis or anything like that. And he's, uh, a little aloof, but not in a off-putting way. He's a very warm character. Uh, and they, often have jokes about things like because he's from our future, he doesn't understand, you know, Buck giving the thumbs up or mm-hmm. common sayings. And he handles those with a plum that you wouldn't expect uh, because these are really bad, stupid jokes that they're, that, that, that they're writing into it. And he just kind of gives it a gravitas that actually works. Um, anyways, he's, he's a great character uh, whose best friend is a computer that uh, the little metal robot wears around his neck as a, a medallion. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what I'm saying is Tim O'Connor, probably a great actor. 
<laughs> we're 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 already seeing his range. Yeah, just a, a, a nice good range. I mean, I I would assume that everywhere he they just again as IMDb, it's it's monstrously long. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one hundred and twenty-two things. But I assume specifically in in his later years, like whether he's playing a villain or one of the good guys, he also probably always plays. The upper crust mm-hmm. of of whatever it is. Yeah, he has um, a bit of a patrician air to him. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, uh, it was. Uh, what's funny is that I would not have like my notes immediately. I just write down Doctor Hewer and with like a bunch of exclamation points. I don't never remembered his the actor's name, mm-hmm. but the moment I saw his name, I could see it on the screen in Buck Rogers. Oh, really? <laughs> like, like, because yeah. it's one of the, yeah, the yeah. first. Yeah, you know, credits that go by, and I'm like, oh yeah, Tim O'Connor. So uh, let me get back to these opening montage. I feel like I'm. So now we're ready for our spinoff, the Buck Rogers uh, podcast. But we'll yeah, which will only go through one season because I, I I cannot take the second season. You heard it here, folks. I don't. I'm, uh, anyways, um, the other notes I have: professional gambler. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see uh, the the whole bit about when you're trying to save someone from themselves. That's called meddling. That's good. Mm, that's exquisite. And then classic, classic car flying off the road freeze frame. Um, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to some car chases and I'm not disappointed on the car chase, although I thought I was. Yeah, it kind of turns turns a corner, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to appreciate our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. Thanks to you. We're a 100 percent listener supported show. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to keeping us going and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast, where we casually chat about the media we're enjoying and the things going on in our lives. We extend special thanks to our gumshoe patrons supporting this episode. Dale Norwood wrote a book, Trading Freedom, How Trade with China Defined Early America. It's about fast ships, cheap drugs, and American political economy. Published by the University of Chicago Press. Find it wherever good books are sold. Chuck from whatyoureading.com. Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color at fruitloopspod.com. Shane Liebling. Check out rollforyear.party for all of your online dice rolling needs. Jay Adon. Check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Dave P., Dave Otterson, Kip Hawley, Matthew Lee, and Jay Thompson. And finally, we can't thank our detective patrons enough for their generous support of the show. Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter. Brian Pereira, at Thermoware. Bill Anderson, at BillAnd88. And of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Well, we start off our episode following two women in amazing hats into their apartment. <laughs> My first note when they went in was like, hmm, this is suspiciously similar to a Beth Davenport apartment. Yeah. Set. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's on, you know, Universal Studio stuff. It's just like, you know, yeah. whatever apartment interior. But there were some aspects of it that reminded me a little bit of the uh, the standard Beth Young set. professional woman apartment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The important bit here is that one of them grabs opera glasses out of a drawer to peer across the street and get the license plate number of a suspicious car that um, I think is telegraphed that like has been following them or was waiting for them. 
Yeah. Um, clearly something that where she's like, I want to find out about this car and uh, <laughs> writes down the license plate number. Uh, opera glasses, the kind of thing that I have lying around. <laughs> when you were a law student, didn't you just have opera glasses in your desk drawer? Yeah, that was standard. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, um, uh, my notes here are just someone's suspicious. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We go from this to Jim. This might be the most cigarette-heavy episode yeah, that we've no. done. <laughs> Jim gets a lot of mileage out of out of smoking some cigarettes in this uh, in this episode, and we yeah. start off our shot of him lighting a cigarette um, with a match, importantly. And he's in a a fancy study with a very uh, fussy kind of patrician, I would say. As we we're just talking about, this is uh, Tim O'Connor, and he is playing the titular Mr. Dexter of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Dexter crisis. So I believe Charles Dexter is the character's name. Um, This really made, just because I was in the mindset, this really felt like a Columbo moment. So Jim (laughs) is lighting a cigarette. Dexter tells him to, uh, if you must smoke in here, use an ashtray, but there are no ashtrays. So Jim takes a small dish off of his desk and no, don't do that. And I tried to figure out what he called it. If this was a a thing, it's some kind of fancy. Di- he had some that's a something something dish, and I couldn't yeah. really understand what the something something was. Uh, so perhaps it is apparent, or perhaps it is just meant to convey what I got, which is that is a fancy piece of china. I I can't stress enough how much this dish is not fancy. <laughs> <laughs> We we do get a close up of it, and it is a seems nice. It's a little berry bowl. It's it yeah, like it it yeah. Um, and it also is nonsensical that it would be sitting on this desk, uh, unless this person wanted to show off that they had this antique, which I believe is 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 the uh, is yeah is the 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 point here. But they solve this problem by first Jim ashes a cigarette into his hand. <laughs> And then uh, Dexter has his assistant come in to take Jim's cigarette. And so this very kind of fastidious woman comes in, has great facial expressions as Jim hands her his cigarette and then empties the ash from his hand into her hand. So all of the business is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. We then get into the 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 premise of our episode here, which is given to us through a bunch of sparring dexter doesn't want to tell jim anything even though he wants jim's help and jim is not going to help until he knows what the deal is Um, yeah so some solid uh solid establishment of uh how jim works with clients here so susan parsons disappeared two days ago and it's a it's a closed case because the police aren't aren't working on it they haven't decided it's worth their time i Mm -hmm. guess Right off the bat, the sparring starts where Jim asks the nature of their relationship. And he says that Jim can, you can assume what it was. (laughs) (laughs) What a hell of a thing to say. Uh, Jim explains that if he's going to help, he has to know the nature of, you know, how they knew each other and why this is important to this guy. And we get the exchange of, you have a very irritating matter. So do you. I guess the thing that I really love about this this whole exchange is that it does have uh, they're they're each status dropping the other from their own particular class, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so Hugh, uh, Hugh, sorry, 
<laughs> That's just going to be a thing. Uh, Dexter, right? Yeah. Charles Dexter um, is feels that he's above Jim. There's a lot of lines in here and throughout about uh, particularly him being a private detective, just being beneath Dexter's station and and just kind of a blah, blah, you know, whatever. But the, the thing is, is that Dexter is having an affair, I assume. Right. Yeah, I think that's made pretty clear. He's looking upon Jim as being the seedy person in the room mm-hmm. when Dexter is doing the seedy, unsavory act. Right. right. And uh, and so that gives Jim, like, this is just part of the sparring here is that Jim is kind of forcing, uh, wants to force Dexter to admit to it, to say these things. And it's good. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, so what what we finally learn is that there's a cottage on the beach where... Dexter and Susan uh, or Charles and Susan meet twice a week, but now she's disappeared and he wants to know what happened. Um, Mm -hmm. But he has a a reputation and a family and doesn't need any complications. (laughs) And so that's why he's being so cagey. Uh, We have a great sequence where Jim lights another cigarette without, without realizing (laughs) that there's still no ashtray. Uh, And then we get into the real meat of it, which is asking how much he costs we get the classic 200 a day plus expenses and an immediate that's absurd i'll give you 50 no expenses uh, mr dexter i don't know what you think is going on here but i sell a service now if you want the service you pay what i think it's worth if you think it's too high you can go down on main street and deal with one of those guys you're a little touchy there hmm? right i'm a little touchy proving yet again that rich people are not willing to pay for anything. Yes, yes. And also, like, good for Jim. Uh, I th- this is a good episode for freelancers uh, the world around. Yes, yes. To just watch and just take notes on Jim holding the line mm-hmm. with his 200 a day. Yeah, it's good. And then Dexter finally says, okay, fine. He'll pay for it for a couple of days. And <laughs> uh, he does have a picture for Jim. And then there's a final gag at the end of the scene where jim's leaving and hands the assistant his second cigarette for her collection yes uh the credits roll as we as as jim gets to the apartment that we've already seen heads up and knocks so the two women that we saw earlier one was susan and the other is louise i think she's the one who who scoped out the license plate right uh yeah yeah so louise is uh is there um Let's Jim in, and we have a little bit of their own banter where we learn that she's a law student. Um, Jim admits that he's uh, not with the police. He is a private investigator. She's not sure she wants to talk to a PI, uh, but he just wants to talk to her about Susan. There's there's a there's a fun dynamic here where Luis doesn't necessarily like have Jim's number or anything, mm-hmm. but she's just not willing to fall for his little cold reads. Yeah, yeah, it's demonstrated that she's 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 not a a, a, a rube. Right. Yeah. Yeah. From the get go, it's demonstrated because she's reading what appears to be the unabridged Oxford Dictionary. Right, right, yeah, this enormous book, <laughs> this law book, while she's ironing her clothes. Right, like so, she's she's a book learned, but also uh, she's got this whole bit about um, she usually trusts her hunches about people, and she's got a good hunch about Jim, but that doesn't mean she trusts who hired Jim, and that is such an incredibly good insight that like <laughs> not just for this episode, but just in general. Yeah. She, she also theorizes that um, Jim must be working for her boyfriend for Susan's mm-hmm. boyfriend. Cause she knows that Susan had 
some boyfriend and she doesn't have any family in the area. So who else would hire Jim? And Jim neither confirms nor denies, but but says like, you know, if that's how you want it, sure, I'm working for her boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, that, we'll just go with that. And the cold read thing is great because uh, she asks him, uh, did the cops tell you about the license plate or something like that? And he says, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. And then she says, oh, so what did they say? Well, I'd like to hear it from you. And she turns back. She's like, you didn't talk to them, did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like another character would would bite on that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, this is establishing that Louise not only has, a, I think, a, a healthy amount of skepticism about the whole thing. She also, as we get to at the end of the scene, sees an opportunity to actually get involved. Yeah. The the classic, uh, you'll have to allow me to work with you deal. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. She says that uh, we can come to some arrangement. He's like, well, $50 cover it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, she wants to be involved uh, and come along with his investigation. Uh, she has the license plate of this car that's been hanging around, but she's not going to share it with Jim unless she can come with him as he follows it up um so her motivation here is that she's worried about susan she's her friend uh wants to know what happened to her and on the way out as jim kind of grudgingly goes along with this because he doesn't really have an option i think he he asks her like what kind of you know why are you in law school or something and she wants to be a public defender or a consumer advocate that kind of thing someone who who defends the little people right that's her her whole thing i want to make note of the hanging chair um, there's this uh, piece of furniture that's in the foreground that's a uh, giant, is it wicker? I don't know. Yeah. No, no. Rattan? Rattan. Mm. Hanging chair. It's very 70s. It's incredibly 70s. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I noticed it. It's a chair that's probably uh, would be egg-shaped if it was all filled in, but it's just this, like uh, like I said, rattan, like just l- lattice work kind of thing. And you just see the back of it, but it's Attached probably to the ceiling and not the floor. <laughs> it's one of those decorative chairs. Anyways, uh, I just, it, it, I had a, a full on flashback seeing it. Like, I, <laughs> I, I remember as a kid thinking, because we didn't have any in our house, but we had friends that had it. And I was thinking, when I grow up, I'm going to have one of those. And now as an adult, I can't imagine mounting a chair to my seat. Like I, the the nightmare <laughs> of, of, of doing that, just mm-hmm. no, no. Jim makes his phone call to the DMV and finds out that the car is registered to another private eye of his mm-hmm. acquaintance, Kermit Higby. Yeah, Kermit. <laughs> but they don't get on. Matter of fact, we came to blows once. He broke my nose. You put him in traction, I suppose. Somebody separated us before he killed me. I was recovering from the flu. I was a little off my game. Now, if we're going to get anything out of Higby, you're going to have to get it. I do like Jim's excuse here that he was recovering from the flu and he's a little off his right, game. Right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Kermit's not going to talk to Jim, mm-hmm. you know, not going to get anything out of him that way. So Louise is going to have to go uh, find out what, what's going on, get something out of him. Um, she asks if he'll hit a lady. <laughs> and Jim says he doesn't think so. But keep an eye on his secretary. She'll hit anybody. <laughs> we cut to a very serious 
conversation phone conversation uh a woman who looks like she's wearing a wig i think yeah i mean i wouldn't say no to that on the phone kind of at a desk um with some strong words about taking money at the beginning of the day for the girl's services and we pan around her to see (laughs) louise in the doorway kind of waiting for her to finish her call this is kind of a, a, a bit of comedy business for the most part uh this is kermit's office he shares it with this woman who runs the Hollywood escort service. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's not there right now. Luis drops that like, well, the trust officer from the bank told me to come talk to him. But if he's not around and she gets immediately interested, he's like, well, you know, I'm sure I can get him back if it's about a trust. <laughs> this has all the hallmarks of a Rockford con that makes me like, I'm curious to see if this is her doing she she thought of this on the spot or if jim sent her in with this but i think she's expecting kermit to be there right so probably she's thinking this up on the spot i i think so i think from the rest of the episode i i am comfortable thinking that she improv like that she went yeah yeah you know something that she came up with so there's there's this yeah so we're we're getting an idea of this character being uh she has good instincts yeah, she's she's a capable foil to Rockford. And we don't know if she's a foil to Rockford yet, but like mm-hmm. she's she's on par with him in many of these respects that we uh it, it's not one of these episodes where somebody who doesn't have Rockford's experience and talents is tagging along and he's constantly trying to to fix their mistakes, right? Right, right. Like, um she she clearly can hold her own. Yeah. The other thing about this scene that I just I mean we say this all the time, but this could have been any secretary to block, but instead they made a character. Mm-hmm. There's there's a character here that doesn't have any like influence on any the rest of the story or anything like that, but it was just entertaining to watch and feels real like even Mm -hmm. as bizarre as it is um i don't know it's just one of those things i just really appreciate by the uh, about the rockford files that they take the time to be to say we we can't just have a person here this has to be a person with a life that's doing a thing yeah they 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 spend time in the dialogue where louise i think to give herself the 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 air of like oh i'm someone you can probably take advantage of because i don't understand the world is like yeah it sounds like you're running something more than a dating service. And <laughs> this woman has a has a comeback about uh, the things that that men will spend money for or something like mm-hmm. there's. Yeah, there's a bit of that character building just in those ex- in those like two or three sentences that, uh, yeah, really, really adds to that fully realized ness of this character that we are soon to be gone from and we'll never see again. Because <laughs> um, she does drop that uh, Kermit's in Las Vegas right now, but he mm-hmm. he can come back. You no, know, she can call him and get him back. And and Lewis is like, well, I really should talk directly to him. I think I've taken like I I think I don't think I need to talk to you about this anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and she just leaves, uh, which is great. And I notice so we have a shot of her leaving this little you know strip mall storefront or whatever it is. And I had happened to pause it to make a note. Right when you can see everything that's written on the two doors, because they're glass doors and they have okay, like yeah. glass paint writing on them. Um, so it's private investigators, bail bonds, house cleaning and painting, protection <laughs> inc, the Hollywood escort uh service, and loans and personal mortgages. <laughs> 
These are all the services offered in this building. <laughs> Nothing shady going on here. Nothing. And then we cut to her getting in Jim's car. And he's eating an ice cream cone. <laughs> <laughs> you love to see it. Uh. He wants to know what she found out, but she doesn't want to tell him what she found out because she thinks he's just going to ditch her and, and, you know, go off on his own with the info. Um, she says that she will give him directions and, uh, you know, they'll stick together as they keep on going. He, he's like, okay, fine. Finishes his ice cream. Which way? I've got to pack a few things, then get on the San Bernardino freeway. Las Vegas, huh? Wildly old Jim, and then Firebird on the highway as we go to commercial and come back to Vegas. So now we're going to get into a spot here. I don't know if this is a continuity error, uh, and it's a thing that I've been trying to, I was trying to figure out the whole episode, but it seems like they both, Jim drove them both to Vegas. Right. And then she has a car there. Yeah. Yeah. That stood out to me as well. And it like normally the show's pretty careful about that kind of thing. Um, so, anyways, uh, it maybe the 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 odd viewer who listens to our episode before watching an episode of the Rockford Files mm-hmm. can can let us know. Uh, but I, I I think it's just an error. I think it's just um, yeah. I mean, I guess just you know, I don't know head head cannon wise. Mm-hmm. Maybe she rented a car, or maybe Jim rented her a car because he doesn't it's a very gym car that she has (laughs) yeah it's true um or actually you know what it is well that also doesn't really make sense okay i mean it's not anything we need to the bus anything over but it's just no no i was just thinking maybe is that susan's car and she was just lying about flying but then why would jim have her go down to the basement to get in the car right like yeah yeah there's there's an extra car floating around that either needs to be there or needs or or didn't need to be mentioned in order to <laughs> have avoided this little blip. It's it, it feels just like a thing we glossed over and yeah. it didn't it doesn't matter to the plot, so it didn't need to get fixed kind of thing. Yeah. Um but yeah, I did think about that as well once it comes up later. <laughs> <laughs> but we start off our Vegas segment with a good classic uh, machine, you know, gambling machine montage and tables and cards and cash being pushed into into slots, etc. Lots of uh, background noise. And- Lots of background noise. Mr. Johnson. Um, there's a, apparently a little Easter egg where I wasn't, I didn't catch it, but the, the rest of this scene takes place in one particular casino. Um, and so they're on the, the casino floor and there's announcements being made over the loudspeaker. And so the names are like production crew people. Names. Oh, yeah. I think one of them's like Charles Floyd Johnson. Like they're... <laughs> So there's a fun, fun little Easter egg there for, for real, real heads. But yeah, I guess, so basically they've, Jim's just been checking at the registration desk of every hotel, trying to see if, <laughs> you know, if he, if he can look out on finding Susan that way. Uh, they're meeting up after he has struck out again, but as coincidence would have it, Louise sees Susan at the roulette table. Um, she has, uh, her smoked glasses and her hair is tied up tight. 
So she definitely doesn't look, you know, the same as the first scene that we saw her like at the very yeah. beginning of the episode. Um, Jim sends Louise back to their motel before sees, Susan sees her because they don't want to, you know, blow blow the, the operation, whatever it is. And then Jim, being a professional, makes a call to Charles Dexter because <laughs> after all, he was hired to find Susan and he has found Susan. Mm-hmm. He specifically makes a collect call. <laughs> collect call. Yeah. I, uh very you're very adamant about that dexter wants jim to make contact and then just kind of keep him in the loop he doesn't want to like i guess i don't know it's unclear what i mean i think as as rockford files viewers and from the title of this episode we can assume there's more going on yeah right um and this just adds to that where it's like yeah you should make contact and uh let me know what else happens yeah, we'll, we'll understand more as it goes on, but it's at, at this point, I, as a viewer, am questioning even the nature of his relationship right, with her. Right, right, yeah. Which, as it turns out, is not uh, fake or anything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, uh, but, like, you know, you, you kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, Jim's, mm. this guy's the villain, and, and Jim's being hired under false pretenses. Right, and that's right. my assumption uh, at this point in the in the story. So we then go to Jim in his professional gambling attire mm-hmm. with his yellow shades and his notebook. Oh, it's so good. Um, so he takes a seat next to her at the roulette table, and we have a little montage of him him betting, him making notes, her kind of glancing over at him. We see that his stacks of chips are increasing, mm-hmm. and we also keep cutting over to uh, a guy who is watching both of them from the slot machines yeah. throughout this whole uh, the whole time. This is uh, this this is Kermit, the other PI. Yeah, there was an oil painting in the office that the camera showed us at the very beginning of that scene that I think is supposed to be him. Oh wow. Nice. Do you remember that? I don't. I don't recall okay. that. Yeah, there was like like the scene with the where where Louise goes in to to talk to yeah, the, like the camera started on an oil painting and then it like went down to the woman on the phone, and I was like, I think that's supposed to be him, but I'm I don't have great facial recognition, so right. I was like, is that the same guy? But yes, as we as we go on, it is in fact the other PI. Uh, the fun bit that I like about this is how uh, this is maybe more evident in in a, a future scene, but just how utterly mechanical he is. Mm-hmm. He just puts the coin in, pulls it. He's not looking at the results. Mm-hmm. He's, he's clearly staring at them and just constantly feeding the machine and pulling the the lever to to give the illusion that he's gambling and not watching someone else. But he doesn't care about the results. I was kind of expecting a gag where he'd like have a big hit, hit a big payout and that would like blow his cover or something. But unfortunately that does not happen. But speaking of big payouts. Yeah. So we kind of get, get to it at the roulette table where Jim is, uh, I don't know how roulette works, but he is getting more chips in front of him as the night goes on. So he's clearly doing something right. I'm full of questions. Like, <laughs> are these expenses that he's charging um, Dexter? Like, um, like this money that mm-hmm. he, he's using for gambling, is this something that he expects Dexter to pay for? That's That was my question at the beginning. And then as he's raking it in, like, well, if that's the case, whose money is that? Right. I can see kind of it's a win-win, right? Like, if yeah. he buys a certain number of chips and then he loses all of his chips 
that's an expense. He spent that right. money, right? But if he spends money on chips and then he wins, that's just his money. <laughs> 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 Anyhow, it does not come up. Uh, maybe maybe in another episode we'll find out more of the details of how gambling expenses work vis-a-vis private investigation. Yeah. Uh, but Susan ends up um, asks him what system he's using, and he says, oh, it's too complex to explain. Then he, he <laughs> wins another another spin. If you play black and red and odd and even, you're bound to lose. Really? Why? Well, the house percentage is just going to chip away at you until you lose it all. And she kind of nods. We have another little beat. And then he decides to cash out and invite Susan to have dinner with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she smiles and agrees. Because he's one charming devil. He is one charming devil. Uh, so we have their pre-dining little conversation. Uh, we don't even get to them being served. So there's nothing, nothing interesting here. Uh, but... <laughs> Um, in this booth, uh, uh, Jim's explaining roulette percentages and like the edge that the house has and stuff. No, you see, no roulette wheel is ever in perfect balance. All you have to do is figure out the bias and keep playing until they catch on what you're doing. That gives you a six or seven percent advantage. If you can keep them from figuring your action, you can rip them good. I hit one of the uh, strip hotels for 50 grand last August before they caught on. But you sat right there in front of them making all those notes? That's just stage grab. <laughs> Makes them think I'm a systems better. Oh, they love systems betters. They always lose. This is when we get the line of like, oh, so you're a professional gambler. <laughs> <laughs> I I suspect a lot of this is grounded in reality because mm-hmm. this is the sort of thing that uh, that they often ground in reality in the Rockford Files and um and in Maverick and, and, and whatnot, but um, the six percent advantage doesn't. The six percent advantage that the house gets makes sense because I, I don't remember how many um, spots there are on a roulette wheel, but there are uh, around the a hundred. There's no triple digit ones, so they're at least a hundred or less, mm. and two of them uh, are going to the the house no matter what maybe there's a i could look it up but anyways, <laughs> the point is uh the the whole biased wheel thing i don't know where how you calculate the percentage advantage you get from uh witnessing the bias that seems a little i mean that may just be a rule of thumb kind of thing yeah like you yeah, kind of yeah. you're, you essentially i don't know i mean i guess it would depend on how much bias it has too if it's only slightly tilted yeah. it's going to be less and if it's has a higher tilt you know, you're going to see more. But I guess the idea is more like you 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 watch the table long enough to see this side hits more often than that side. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when you play, you you play to those. put more of your bets on the side that hits more often. And that's where you get your edge. Right. Like that's the so idea. Thirty eight pockets. OK. On a roulette wheel. So and two of them are um, on, on an American roulette. Wheel. Oh, OK. And I'm assuming that's what they're using here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's about a 5%. Um, yeah. All right. So this has been Math. Math and, Corner with Epi. Yeah. Uh, just apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Confirm the 70s roulette uh, uh, busting um, strategy. Yeah. I'm sure that modern roulette tables are probably like magnetically leveled right. or something like have some kind of like wild stuff to yeah. keep that from happening i don't know 
I don't know how gambling works. I only know it from movies and TV. Um, we do see uh, the other PI still watching them through this conversation, and then we cut from them getting their menus to uh, Jim walking Susan to her room. Her room happens to be room number 420. <laughs> yeah, I was. I made a note of that, too, and I was like, D- is this a thing we point out? Is that what we do on this show? But I mean, uh, we just we, did. We just did. Uh, so, you know, Rockford Files blaze it. Um, <laughs> she tells Jim that she had a good time. Uh, she's been very lonely in Vegas until tonight. Uh, they make a date to meet at the same time, same wheel the next day. And she does give him a quick kiss before going into uh, her yeah, room. It's all very sweet. Jim heads back to the motel where he's uh, sharing an adjoining room with Louise. And we learn what he has learned throughout the evening. She's given her name. Uh, it's a fake name as Donna Weston. She claims to be waiting for a divorce to come through, and she's just killing time in Vegas until <laughs> until that happens. And Jim's like, not a very creative cover story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're done. They know where she is. They know that she isn't being held against her will. And whatever she's doing there, it's her own business. But Louise wants to help her, and she has this whole speech. Yeah. It's a nice balance, because... As she's talking, I'm like, huh, this is like a whole a whole speech. And then that is specifically called out. Yeah. I grew up in a tenement house in Philadelphia. My parents spent their lives getting fleeced by semi-legitimate salesmen. I'm going to be an attorney and protect people against the scavengers. And I've got some commitments to myself. I don't care if they seem important to you, but they're important to me. Susan is a starting point, And I'm not going to turn my back on her or on myself. I'll see you in the morning. A speech like that deserves more of a comment. Okay. <laughs> this is where we get his, this is from the preview montage as well, is um, you can't protect Susan from herself. That's called meddling. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel like this is an early season kind of thing where we get the moment where Jim gets to explain his view of the world a little bit to us. Yeah. His, his take here is like, there's a difference between protecting people from others and from interfering in someone's personal journey, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you can protect someone from someone who's out to get them, but it's not your business to meddle with someone when they're the only person that they're potentially going to harm is themselves. Yeah. It's kind of that self-reliance thing. And I know some of the other, I wouldn't say tough guy. (laughs) No, the, the, the kind of, uh, at the end of the day, you really only have yourself to to rely on attitude. Right. Yeah, there's a little bit of like um, it, it's just it's more trouble than it's worth, right? Like like yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe not more trouble than it's worth, but it's more trouble than you you realize. Like it's more trouble than you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. We have a crossfade to Jim pacing around while there's a plaintive harmonica. Yeah. There's good music in this episode. Before he clearly makes some kind of decision and goes to knock on Louise's door, but she's gone. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a little break. Uh, we want to make sure that you know where you can follow all of our other projects and interests online. Epi, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can Google Epidia. I am the only one out there that I know of. Uh, you can go to digathousandholes.com. That's the number a thousand. Or you can go to worlds, 
plural, without master singular.com and uh, find my work there. How about you, Nathan? My internet home for all things NDP is at ndpdesign.com. You can find all of the links and information for all of my various games, including the Worldwide Wrestling role-playing game, my zines, and uh, podcast projects, of which perhaps there may be more than one. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at ndpaoletta. As always, if you want more information about the podcast, go to 200aday.fireside.fm. And now back to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish. Back to the casino in his gambler disguise, which primarily consists of his yellow shades. <laughs> and you see Susan at the roulette table yet again. So this is, I think this is kind of cleared up a little bit, the timeline, but this is later that same night. So she yeah. went to bed, he went to bed, and then he comes back and she's back downstairs and, you know. We're, we're yeah. going from there and we see Kermit still watching her. And here's, here's where he's really making the really strident like pulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just not bothering looking at the machine. Jim goes up to Susan's room. Uh, it turns out it's unlocked and he walks in to see Louise on the floor. Oh no. And yeah. someone comes up behind him and whacks him in the back of the head. Oh no. <laughs> And then we have an ominous freeze frame as we see, oh, it's Dexter. <laughs> what have you done, Dr. Hewer? <laughs> so I, I was, at this point, not expecting him to be the, the one to do, like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly the plot I was formulating in my head, um, but I, I had some assumptions, I guess, that uh, this other... The person that will turn out to be Kermit um, was also working for him, and that this is the the thug mm. that will assault Jim. But no, this is this is straight up Dexter. Dexter doing his own dirty work. Yeah, uh, which is a turn. We we hit a balancing point in the episode where we now know a little bit more than Jim does. Right. Yeah. Up to this point, we've just known what Jim knows. Yeah. And now we know just a little bit more than he does, and that adds. I think a significant amount of interest and tension to the remainder of the episode. Louise wakes first and wakes up Jim. The place is totally torn apart. Uh, as you were saying when we were talking about her earlier, the way that she got in is she just pulled a very Rockford style smooth talk where she yeah. went to the desk, claimed to be a Donna, whatever the, the alias that Susan's there under and she lost her key. So they just made her another key. Cause why would someone who's not the person whose room it is ask for a key? Right. Right. Ah, <laughs> uh, the seventies. Um, Jim thinks that whoever tossed the room didn't find what they were looking for because it's completely destroyed. And usually you stop looking once you find, find the thing. That's just one of those delightful, just, uh, yeah, this is this is just how that works. Like yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it just it just makes sense. All right, so they get in the elevator and go downstairs. Jim wants her to stay in the elevator, go down to the basement, and as he says, get in her car and go home. And this is where right. we hit the so. Oh, she she has her car there, but right. Um, <laughs> we already we already talked yeah, about that little speech. It's been button. addressed. Then he leaves the elevator, and then. The camera stays on her over his shoulder, and we see her slowly get out and follow him before the doors close. Yeah. He notices that she didn't do it, so he goes over to a security card. <laughs> uh, you see that red hood girl back there? She's been following me around all night. Now, I never saw her before tonight, and she keeps saying that uh, 
She's the divine spirit, and I'm the iris of her psyche, whatever that is. But either you get rid of her, or I'm going to move out of this hotel. I mean, come on, really. The rates you guys charge, I shouldn't have to play tag with some adolescent acid head. We take care of it, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. The episode has done a good job so far of showing us that Louise is on par with Rockford for a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? Like, because if this wasn't the case, this would be kind of a mean thing for, I mean, it's still a mean thing for Rockford right, right, to do, yeah. but this, that would be like a, just, a, just a ridiculously mean thing for him to do. Um, but in this case, we, I, at least I, as the viewer, uh, am confident that she can hold her own when this is thrown at it's her. It's a bit of an acknowledgement of like, okay, she's kind of on my level. So I have to, right. I have to yeah. escalate my, my techniques to, uh, yeah, exactly. To, to get what I want out of this. So the security guy says he'll take care of it and they fade into the background. Jim engineers running into Susan. He kind of just lurks outside her door until she comes mm-hmm. out of the elevator <laughs> so he can run into her. Mm-hmm. Um, they both have a little story about like, oh, I couldn't sleep. Or Jim says, like, I got a call about a table, but then I didn't want to play with those. You know, it turns out there are too many people and I don't like to play with shills, I think he says. Yeah, or something. So he says goodnight, but then he just waits a beat while she opens her door so that he can be there when she reacts to seeing the room yeah. that's torn apart. It's very, very smooth. Um he offers to call the desk. She doesn't want him to. She says it must be her husband doing some like doesn't know what he was looking for. But Jim offers to help. And she's like, well, I don't want to ask too much of you. Uh, he says, like, well, just ask. And she wants to go to Reno mm-hmm. and like get out of there. And he's like, all right, I'll give you a ride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but first she has to stop at the airport. Um, the airline found one of her bags that hadn't made it earlier. And she wants to pick it up on their way out. This is important later. Yeah. She also, like, the, her reason for wanting to go to Reno is that she has to stay in Nevada for her residence requirement. Right. Which I think has to do with the divorce, but I'm not entirely sure. But I, I assume think that that was a, yeah, like that was part of the divorce storyline. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we then go to Jim and Susan driving. Well, Jim's driving. They're both in the Firebird. Jim sees that they're being followed. By... None other than Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> yeah. Does he, doesn't he have one of the cigarettes? I can't. Like, it was a quick he shot. He has a cigar, I think, it, I think. Oh, it's a cigar. Okay. But I he does have the big the glasses. cigarette holder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Susan says that she doesn't know who would want to follow her. Uh, well, maybe if someone you know, wanted ripped apart your room, they would also keep following you to see you, see where you're yeah. going. <laughs> then yes then we see that we get the close-up of of kermit chomping on the cigar as he follows then we get a shot of louise in another car also one can assume yeah. following now I, I don't know the car that she's in but at some point we see the, a, a car that she has and it it has a okay not a car guy has a silhouette it has a look very much like a just like a higher end firebird it just it reminds me of it so i guess it's I assumed it was a convertible because it has. It looks like it has yeah. a soft top, but I, that could just be a two-tone paint job. We may have uh, some insight onto into this from the Rockford Files files. Ah. The primary goon car uh, that mm-hmm. Kermit's driving is a 1973 Ford Custom 500. Um, apparently the low option. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, and then later, I don't think she's driving it now, but later when we see Susan and Louise 
They're in a Camaro. It's a 74 Camaro. Yeah. The IMDb says that uh, they're in a Camaro and the close-up shots of the speedometer are of the Mopar instrument cluster and steering wheel, which I assume is not a Camaro. Thing. I would assume. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to contribute car knowledge so that we can look it up and read it live on the show, you too can yeah. become a patron at <laughs> patreon.com slash 200 a day and both uh, get the link to and contribute to our spreadsheet of ephemera about the show. Um, anyhow, in this instance, Jim has a, a fun little plan where they pull off the highway, switch drivers. Jim gets out of the, the Firebird. Susan drives up a little farther and then stops. And so by the time yeah. Kermit follows, he sees the stopped Firebird, pulls up behind it, and then Jim runs out of the <laughs> runs out of the sagebrush and uh, <laughs> and and jumps. Not jumps in, but kind of gets into his face through the driver's side window. Yeah. We have good tough guy banter where they both remember how, you know, Kermit spread his nose all over his face last time. <laughs> and then he opens the door and Jim lets him open it just far enough that he gets his arm out. And then he slams the door shut oh, on God. his like forearm, which looks awful. You know, asks him why he's following them, why he knocked Jim out. And mm -hmm. he says, I didn't knock you out. And Jim's like, okay, fine. And he and he <laughs> raises his fist, but he just can't punch a helpless man. Yep. Our our honorable Jim Rockford. So I, this is a thing. I mean, this is first season. So, but uh, I just want to point out this pattern in the Rockford Files, which I really do enjoy, which is when you're in a car and someone is on the outside, they have the power. Like it's mm -hmm. always this scene of like, you're seated and behind the door, uh, they generally have the advantage on you. They have like a, a height advantage. Like sometimes you can open the door quickly on them and whatnot. But like, I just, we see this a lot in the Rockford files that like the, the first to the door kind of has the, the upper hand. Well, I think specifically when Jim's touching a car, right? it's his weapon, whether he's yeah. in it or out of it, right? <laughs> so, like, if the position's reversed, Jim is is it generally able right. to use the door to whack the guy to knock him off balance or something like that. But mm -hmm. since he's outside the car, he's touching the car. So the car is still his weapon. <laughs> but I, I do think we've seen moments when he's in the car and maybe he goes to open it and, like, the... Sure. Yeah. Bug shoves it shut on him and he's like, okay, I can't, can't get out this way or whatever. But yeah, yeah uh, no, I just love the, the sort of, yeah, maybe it's not even like uh, a one way or the other, but it, it's always a scene where there is like someone has the upper hand on someone else. Yeah, there's else. an imbalance yeah. due to that positioning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jim does take his keys away. Always a, always a classic. And mm -hmm. Kermit says, if it had been me, I would have beat you to death. Yeah, I know. But he does give him another hard squash with the door. Yeah. As he walks away. All right. And then we get to a big, uh, I don't know, a, a, a big scene, a big yeah. drama scene in Reno. We start off with Susan calling Jim in his room. They're in separate rooms in a hotel or whatever. Mm -hmm. Calling Jim and, you know, saying she's, you know, she's she's back from whatever she was doing. He He should come over. Come over to talk, uh, and he specifically says, "Like I only called ten times trying to find you." This yeah. is just establishing that there's been a period of time that yeah. Susan was not in Jim's orbit. This <laughs> is important later. Uh, he goes to talk to her. She asks him if he's going to stay around in Reno. She has two more weeks before her divorce comes through, and then Jim finally drops the the, the truth on her 
tells her that uh, who he really is. He's a PI. He's working for Charles Dexter. Uh, was you know hired to find her, and that he's called Dexter, and Dexter is flying out to Reno right now. Mm-hmm. She, of course, is not happy to hear this. <laughs> hear this news. Uh, did Dexter tell Jim that he was insane? He was getting jealous. He thought that she was cheating on him and started threatening her. But Jim doesn't buy this and asks her to tell him the truth for a change, specifically because somebody else, not Dexter, hired Kermit, who's been following her. Someone went through her room looking for something, maybe a key to a locker, because he watched her at the airport and she got Mm. her bag from a locker, not from the, like, bag claim or whatever. So she's been lying to him about some stuff and things just aren't adding up. Citation needed. Citation needed. (laughs) We didn't have that scene. I actually, we, I was like, did I miss a scene? Did I, uh, but yeah, go on. No, yeah, Sorry. we're just getting the exposition of yeah, of, yeah, yeah. yeah of that scene. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like, uh, we don't need a whole other location for that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> There's no need for the that bit. Their business gets very strained here. She is clearly angry and mm-hmm. maybe a little frightened. Yeah. He's yeah. annoyed. <laughs> And is very in very like, I want to find out what's really going on mode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she tells him where her bags are in the closet. I, for some reason, I don't know why, but I expected when he opened the closet for someone to be in there. <laughs> oh, I had the other. I thought I thought for sure the even more ridiculous thing would be uh he'd open it up and she'd shove him in and lock him in it or something Uh yeah i don't know why there was just something about how that was shot where it felt like there was something really dramatic about to happen something was gonna happen yeah but he just pulls out her bag starts going through them there's a knock at the door jim answers and it's louise with a cop Mm -hmm. that's him officer that's the one (laughs) and tells him to arrest jim susan of course is shocked uh to see louise Jim is, as is his his way, very cool with this sudden reversal of fortune. Mm-hmm. Tells the cop who has an amazing mustache yes. uh, that he should ask him for the charge. And he's like, I think it's like kidnapping and attempted rape, I think, is what the... Yeah, yeah. It's you know, what, what Louise told him. Yeah, pretty serious. And Jim's like, look, here's my PI license. She's a missing persons from L.A. Um, you should just take us all in and sort it all out and sort it out with all of us. Because mm-hmm. I promise you, <laughs> you know, if you leave them now, you're never going to see them again. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful joke in the cut. <laughs> <laughs> if you go for that officer, you'll be making a big mistake. Why don't you let me worry about that buster? And then we cut. I hope you appreciate the fact that I haven't once said I told you so. I did appreciate it. Did you just said it? that was so good the Mm. delivery this cop's delivery is is uh, a delight because he is almost but not quite a stereotypical rural cop right like he's he's Uh it's very like down homey the way he delivers his lines and so it's great it's just you feel like he does appreciate it uh and then yeah then of course rockford had to say it so um yeah, and also I just wanted to point out that like as severe all as all of this stuff is, uh, it was Rockford who first escalated to to involving authorities, and That's so true. yeah, I'm like, yeah, what goes around comes around, buddy. <laughs> so yes, they indeed split after Jim was taken downtown and are gone. Yeah, sure enough, 
Uh, they do have the missing persons report for Susan Parsons. Um, and then someone named Albert Frost has shown up saying that he hired Jim. So mm-hmm. the whole story checks out. Uh, <laughs> and Jim wants an apology. <laughs> and the lieutenant says, get lost before I book you as a troublemaker. And Jim responds with, thank you. I accept your apology. Albert Frost, of course, is Charles Dexter. Um, Jim says it was risky to use a use an, uh, an alias. What if I blown your your cover? Um, if Dexter still wants to employ Jim, he's going to need some fresh material. Uh, Jim <laughs> needs to know what's so valuable. What is he really after? Um, specifically, he did lose her for about half an hour, which was at the beginning of that scene, mm-hmm. long enough to get a new bag from somewhere and take whatever she'd gotten from her airport bag and put it somewhere else. And now the two of them are gone. After some more hemming and hawing, Dexter says that he'll pay Jim's fee plus a 10% finder's fee of whatever he returns mm-hmm. once he tells him what it actually is. Jim holds out for 40%. Dexter holds it 10 And then Jim's like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Dexter's company or his corporation got into some kind of trouble and he got together... $250,000 in cash to pay some guy to help with whatever that trouble was. Uh, I mean, this might be revealed later, but I think it's to keep someone from testifying. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. But when he went to make the handoff, the guy never showed, and he stashed the suitcase full of money at the beach house that he mm-hmm. shared with Susan. And then the next time he went back, Susan was gone and the suitcase was gone. Jim says, if that's true, why was she sitting at the roulette wheel in Vegas? He noticed that she wasn't gambling. She was just cashing, like she was getting chips, sitting there, then cashing her chips. Um, yeah. And I think he says, like, maybe was she, like, laundering the bribe money? Right. Dexter doesn't really answer that and just says, this is what happened. He doesn't want to admit to bribing someone. Yeah. Right. Are you in or out? And Jim says that. He'll let him know what he decides. Um. So, okay. So we now come into... <laughs> A sequence where a small plane is landing. Okay. So let <laughs> this section of the episode. Uh, okay. Uh, Long time listeners might recall uh, that I used to transcribe television shows. And this section of the show uh, was like a, like a holiday. Like it's just this wonderful stretch where no one says anything. Even today, my stress levels just drop. Whenever I encounter this in a television show, I should just watch silent films is really where what it should be. But I want to point out. So what's going to happen over this, this stretch here is that if, if you haven't watched the show yet or if you're just curious, go back and watch this. The music in here is kind of amazing because what we get here is this plane is coming in and it's a long, luxurious, just we're just relaxing and watching a plane land. And it's it's, you know, it's the 70s. It's like a little, like a little two-seater plane, like a little prop plane. Yeah. And there's this soulful guitar solo going on over the top of this. It's in the, it's, it's not, not a character for the Rockford Files, but it is, it stands out. And then when it lands and the, the, uh, Stairs come down, and Rockford gets out and transfers to a car. The harmonica comes in. And this is 
the jauntiest version. Like this, it's again, it's it's not specifically the Rockford theme, but it's in in of a piece with the theme. I, I don't really know how to talk about music, but this is almost a comedic harmonica. Mm-hmm. Like it, you you expect some slapstick something to happen, and then when he starts driving, the banjo kicks in. And the banjo is now almost tense. It's mm-hmm. almost like it's almost a scary banjo. And I, and I, it's so I'm good. just this is my like emotional journey as watching all of this happen. And the, there's no, there might be a little bit of dialogue when Rockford gets the car because it looks like it was a rental or something like that. I can't remember, but like I don't think so. I think he just gets in the car. <laughs> I may have described 15 minutes of this episode right there. Like, I, maybe not that much, but like it, it to the point where my notes at what is happening. <laughs> it, it's kind of like like a, another episode just kind of starts. Yeah, yeah, and and then Rockford parks the. He's going along a desert road, and he parks the car, and then he moves over to the passenger seat and just kind of digs in, ready to stake out or whatever. music goes into kind of a lullaby not exactly but just like kind of relaxing you and mm-hmm. yeah he really settles in to to yeah scope out this this stretch of blacktop um i noticed that he took off his seatbelt when he scooted over to which mm-hmm. which is when i realized i hadn't been paying attention to seatbelt watch oh but yeah from now on i am paying attention to seatbelt watch um yeah from the editing we really get the sense that he's settling into wait and he waits for a while yeah um i guess he's probably on the road back to california yeah so this is my guess here is that all of this is to show this is again this wonderful aspect of the rockford files where we just sort of see the grunt work from time Mm. to time and this is just all that he has to go through to 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 get further down the road than they are Mm -hmm. and wait for them to come and so that's that's what's happening and it's and yeah it's a delight it's an absolute delight so we get a couple shots of oncoming cars where Jim kind of sits up and looks and sees who's driving him and settles back down. And then we have a crossfade to seeing the, uh, was it a Corvette? Is that what we said? Camaro. Camaro. Well, we are, we are receiving Sorry. some voicemails uh, about boy. this episode. <laughs> um, we have a, a crossfade to see the Camaro with, uh, Susan and Louise, uh, driving. Um, and then we cut to see that Kermit, is following with mm-hmm. another, I think, a different pair of sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> they are all wearing their seatbelts, just now that I'm on seatbelt watch. Uh, specifically, if you haven't heard, in, in a fairly recent episode, there was a note about uh, uh, standards and practices coming down on the Rockford Files for not having yeah. appropriate seatbelt use. So now I'm keeping an eye out for proper seatbelt wearing in, in all of our episodes. Um, Jim sees both of them pass. Uh, so Kermit's following the, the, the two women um, and pulls a big wallowing you to follow both of them. His car is no Firebird. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> and then we have a bit of a sequence where uh, the women realize they're being followed. They start speeding up and the score has dropped out by now. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting all the good road noise acceleration yeah. um as they're speeding up, Kermit's speeding up, we're seeing their speedometer, we're seeing his speedometer. 
Apparently the control cluster isn't the right control cluster. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, the pursuit continues. We see that they're hitting 90, you know, 90, going over 90. Yeah, it's it's fun watching it build because at first I'm like, oh, yeah, I've done 70. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've done 75. Ooh, 80. Ooh, 85. Ooh, like it just, mm-hmm. it, instead <laughs> of just like, instead of just showing us a high number, it really does feel like they're pushing it up each step of the way. Right. And it, it, it just gives it more uh, uh, inertia. So Louise is driving and Susan has a moment where she looks behind and sees Jim following, you know, the car that's following them and says, yeah. I think that's Jim. And Louise turns her head to look. And then we cut to the exterior and we see that she's just drifted entirely into the oncoming lane as she's looking behind her behind Mm -hmm. her shoulder, which is an extremely real moment. (laughs) You feel it like throughout your body. She's going so fast that, you know, there's that moment if you're just kind of driving and you look over your shoulder and then you look back and you realize you've drifted a little bit and you're like, ah, you like, yeah, yeah, pull back in. If you're going 90, that little moment is taking you all the way into the oncoming lane of traffic. (laughs) So there's like a station wagon or something that honks and she realizes that she's in the wrong lane and she corrects and it overcorrects. Yeah. They go shooting off the road onto the, onto the, uh, into the dirt on the side. And there's a big rackety clash as they Mm. rumble over a bunch of terrain and finally come to a, uh, to a stop. Now, I will say there's a little bit of a lie in the opening montage about where they stop this because the opening montage definitely made me think they're going to roll. Yeah, yeah. It it cuts as they like go up over uh over a, a little hill. Yeah. And it definitely looks like they're going to land and and start rolling, but they do not, which is good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. At this point, I don't want them to roll. When you see it in the opening montage, you're hoping for a roll, but right. now I care about the characters and I don't want it. Yeah. Um, Jim is far enough behind that he, so, so Kermit just keeps going straight. Jim is far enough mm-hmm. behind that he can come off the side of the road and follow them and come to their aid. There, there is a bit, uh, where Kermit comes to a stop. <laughs> I, yeah. Saying yeah, yeah. his name Kermit, I always see the, the frog, but anyways, uh, Kermit comes to a stop and then Jim accelerates into it. And I, I, I'm like, is he going to deliberately ram him? But it, it's, it, it scares Kermit off. Yeah, yeah. I like that tactic. Jim does go to their aid, um, helps them out of the car, and then immediately just starts taking their suitcases out of the trunk and searching them. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we get a bit of a confrontation about everything going on. You know, ask Louise, where's, you know, where's this money? Um, what happened to all the public defending? What happened to the nice person I met less less than a week ago? <laughs> And she comes back at him with, uh, you know, what do you care? You have Jim Rockford hasn't thought about anyone but himself since he was 14. Which <laughs> is probably true. It's a it's a very um, what you call it? Uh, Beth Beth line. This is, <laughs> a little like, bit, this yeah. is a Beth argument and asks, what's he getting out of all this? Like, why are you even still following us? Mm-hmm. Like Twenty five thousand dollars. Look, I'll split that with you. Yeah. He looks to Susan. Susan says, Louise is my lawyer. I'm letting her handle it. Jim says, they, well, they should both get a lawyer. Dexter knows that they took the, took the money. But Susan knows Charles Dexter. He's not going to make any public charges against anybody, yeah. which seems fair. Uh, Jim doesn't turn up anything in the bags. He goes to his car. He looks back. He sees them just standing by their disabled car. There was a moment where they were trying to, you know, start it and like it was just turning over without, you know, without yeah. starting and everything. 
So we have the the pregnant pause before he walks back over and is like, okay, you're going (laughs) to need a ride. (laughs) Um, We cut to Kermit pulling a U and heading back towards them as they get into Jim's car. And Louise is saying it's a rotten old world. And that makes it really easy to set aside your ethics. Mm -hmm. Asks if he was serious about splitting the reward. He was. So she has a key taped to her leg for a bus locker at the bus terminal in reno and that's where the suitcase is jim says all right let's go and that's when kermit with seatbelt on rolls in and just plows into the front of jim's car in a desperation move i guess but as we can immediately tell from him trying to restart his car it's more damaged than jim's jim you know flies out runs back over to his driver's side uh and yells, uh, so he's been calling him, we've been calling him Kermit. They've been calling him Rigby the whole time, but that's not as fun. Yeah. It says, uh, Rigby, I couldn't hit you before, but now I can. And then he <laughs> makes another face like, ah, oh, cause, cause Kermit's kind of stuck in the, in the, in the driver's seat. Yeah. Kermit just gives him a smile, like, you know, taunting yeah. <laughs> him. Rigby, I couldn't hit you before, but you just changed all that. Oh, what the hell? Good, satisfying, meaty punch. Mm-hmm. But then... Yes. There's a reason I didn't do that before. I think I broke my hand. <laughs> uh, it's so good. All right, we cut from there into our finale scene of uh, perhaps the most important scene of the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> where Jim... <laughs> Jim is yet again in Dexter's, I wanted to say Dexter's laboratory, in Dexter's <laughs> office. And Charles Dexter is writing him a check for $200 for each day, plus lavish expenses. Yes. Are you going to pay my bonus with a separate check? <laughs> like We had an agreement. Yeah. 10% of what I recovered, which in this case is exactly $24,822. Uh, and Dexter's like, I would never pay you that much money. You only worked for a couple days. Like, well, you paid me for my service. It could have taken me a year. Well, I wouldn't pay that for a year's work. Yeah. Jim is righteously indignant. Uh, We had an agreement. You know, you promised me this money. If you're not going to give it to me, I'll make trouble. (laughs) Did you say trouble, Mr. Rockford? Let me tell you something. The reason that fellow didn't show up for his payoff is because he decided not to go along. As a result, my corporation is going to lose a suit that's going to cost me $10 million. And that private investigator, Kermit Higby, I found out who hired him. My wife hired him. She's suing me for divorce. And you think you can give me trouble? <laughs> and then we just get a bitter smile as on Jim as he lights a cigarette and then drops the, the match into the fancy... The fancy dish that's been on his table, (laughs) on his desk this whole time. And we have a horrified face on Charles Dexter. Close up on the match. End of episode. Uh, That was fun. It was an enjoyable ride. Uh, I'm going to just say right now, I don't think he gets that money. I don't know if Louise and Susan are going to hold him accountable for their shares of the money that he promised them. Um, But it really does seem like... Uh, Mr. Dexter is not going to to cough up. Right. I think we can uh, uh, optimistically assume that the check that he writes him for the basics, Mm -hmm. like we'll assume that that goes through, it doesn't bounce or anything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that bonus is uh, 
long gone. Long gone. Never coming. Never coming in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely a fun one. One that I I uh, enjoyed very much while watching. I think going back through it, I started feeling it. It it, it didn't really stand up at the seams as much. I think for mm-hmm. me, like there's the car thing which we talked about, and I think is just a maybe a line explaining it got cut. Maybe it just didn't get noticed, and it doesn't matter enough to do a voiceover explaining what what it was. You know, right? That, that kind of stuff happens. It's it's not a big deal. Um, I guess thinking about it from Susan's perspective, since we spent a little more time with her on walking through the episode, I feel like I'm a little confused. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like what, what was she doing? Is that your, yeah. yeah. So like she, 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 she falls into the suitcase full of money. Right. And she takes it. She, she, she takes the money. She takes her bags. She goes to Vegas. So Susan, I think is throughout the episode painted as, uh, a little more impulsive, like from the get go, mm-hmm. it's Louise that's worried about them being followed. Right. Uh, and the person that's following them, it turns out is because Susan's boyfriend's wife mm-hmm. hired, like it has nothing to do with the money at that right, point. Right. And I, and I like that. I like that. There's this outstanding question of like, what is Kermit doing? Like, why is right. he there? Who hired him? Yeah. And that's brought together at the end in a way where it's like, okay, that, and it, that works. It, explains why kermit hasn't made any like strong moves because there's no he's not looking for money he's not looking for a quarter million dollars he's yeah. he's he's probably um, just he's just he's probably just padding out his expenses really yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you put a lot of quarters into those uh slot machines yeah um but yeah it doesn't sound like she has a plan right she goes to vegas maybe she's laundering the money <laughs> Like laundering it because she knows that it could get tracked back to Dexter's company. Yeah, yeah, or, or like, yeah. So that is the question. Like, what is what is she doing? It it does. It very much seems like she took the money and ran, and then doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah, and is just yeah. kind of in in kind of a. Uh, is she just in a holding pattern? She doesn't want to gamble. Like she doesn't want to gamble. Right, but she needs to do something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's and, just killing time. I guess there's a little bit, there is some textual stuff in the text where it's like, cause she says like, I don't play blackjack or poker because they're too complicated. Yeah. And then she says something later where she's like, I'm not very smart, but I'm smart enough to know that Dexter's never going to make a public charge. Yeah. So I think the text might be trying to paint her as someone who's like, not that smart. Yeah, like Louise is this the savvy roommate. Yeah, yeah. And Susan is is uh, the impulsive one. Yeah, and there's a bit in Louise's speech about that as well. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like protecting Susan from herself is a little bit of that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess I took that part as just what's going on there. That's the internal life of Susan. Sure, just... it's not that there's it's not that there's something that we don't know. It's that she is she literally doesn't know what to do with herself. Yeah. Yeah. That said, she keeps doing really smart things that foil Rockford, right? Like she hides the money and the, um, but like the moment Louise shows up, she lets Louise take charge. Right. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess there's something where it's like, in terms of the laundering, it's not because of like tracing the actual bills or anything, but it's like, I can't just put $250,000 in my bank account. Yeah. And go on yeah. with my life. So it's like, do you go to Vegas, you gamble your money a little bit at a time just to like have a bunch of cash out 
winnings and then you're like yeah. i went to vegas and i won all this money yeah i guess like that's maybe the the goal yeah or maybe the the idea is that you go to vegas you gamble that money until you win more so that you come back and just return the 250,000 oh, and just keep the money that you wanted. Maybe. The, I think we're we're probably thinking about it more than it was thought about for the, yeah. <laughs> the purposes <laughs> of the story. And then when Louise gives Jim the key, I guess I guess what we're supposed to get from that is like she had given in cuz she has the line about uh you know, this rotten old world. Yeah. Um, it'll make you go back on your principles or whatever. So it's like she did that. She like gave in to temptation, I guess. And was like, all right, mm-hmm. now we're on the run and we have all this money. Yeah. But now that they've been caught for whatever value of caught Jim. <laughs> well, I mean, having them is they just went through like a very stressful crash. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, a high speed chase. I think at that point. Yeah. And it's like this money isn't worth if this is going to be the life of like. Yeah, running yeah, around exactly. with the suitcase. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Jim is offering them a way out that doesn't doesn't follow them for the rest of their lives, right? Like right, she can right. go back to being uh, learning to be a lawyer, and yeah, just uh, like uh, just like eight thousand something dollars richer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And uh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Just absolutely wonderful. If she showed up in one of the uh, the nineties movies. Like in at the height of her lawyering career, uh, to help Jim out of a bind or something. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be pretty good. There's no way that's happening, but still, that 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 would that would be great. Um, but yeah, no, definitely a fun episode. We're now in the overthinking it phase. Uh, yep. <laughs> like I said, I really I really like how having and I'd say this about a lot of the episodes that are kind of like this, where it's like having the multiple interests that are overlapping but they're not but they're not all aiming at each other like adds a lot of richness and that's the having the you know uh, kermit hired by um dexter's wife like that's another interest that is involved and complicates things but they're not aimed at the money so it's more interesting than if they were all just chasing a suitcase yeah and like i feel when we got to that point um at the end i was uh, the whole time when we were watching before it's revealed that he you know, was hired by the wife, I'm like, why is he doing the thing he's doing? But yeah, no, that's good. That's good stuff. I, I like the episode long joke of the, the fancy China dish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> check out, check out's fancy dish. Um, that was a really nice button on it to mm-hmm. give, give Jim just a little bit of satisfaction in the face of not getting his big payout. Uh, <laughs> that was really, really nice. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think those were the things that stood out to me. Yeah. The Dexter crisis. Yeah. So no good for him. And I guess he's getting his, he's getting his just desserts cause he's clearly a creep and clearly right. everything is falling down around him and Jim doesn't have to be involved. So that's good. <laughs> this empire that he has built up is, is no longer mm-hmm. at his disposal. Do you have anything else to, uh, anything else to say about the Dexter crisis? Uh, I'm going to run out and watch uh, The Last Dinosaur and <laughs> uh, the Wizards and Warlocks version uh, episode of The Greatest American Hero. Well, then our our work here is done. <laughs> well, when when next when next we talk, you can report back about those <laughs> because we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs> Wee, 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 wee,
sorry. I don't know how to do a harmonica. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's pretty close. 